Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the Tom Hartman Program. My name is Jefferson Smith. It's an honor to be with you. 100 years ago, starting really almost 130 years ago, some would say starting about 150 years ago with the wrapping up of the Civil War, we had a mammoth transition of the American economy, moving from an agrarian era to industrial era. Economic power moving from the working farm to the working city. And during that period of transition, You had significant disruptions in democratic systems and in economic systems. You had vast wealth conglomerated within trusts. Standard Oil, Andrew Carnegie selling Carnegie Steel to J.P. Morgan, making U.S. Steel. In about 1890, the country recognized that this organization of economic power recognized that the railroads that were being built, conglomerating among too few owners, were making it less likely for people to be able to afford what they needed, less likely for other people to enter the marketplace, and less likely for there to be a democracy. Justice Brandeis taught us that you can have vast disparities of wealth or you can have democracy, but you can't have both. Writers in Europe wrote about the means of production. In Russia, a revolution during this period overcorrected and created tyranny of a different sort. We are now entering into a new era. For the last, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, We have been transitioning from an industrial era into an information age. And the companies that are conglomerating wealth now are more powerful than U.S. Steel, are more powerful than Standard Oil. Mark Zuckerberg is more powerful than Andrew Carnegie. What are our tools? How will we, during this time of major disruption, of economic and democratic systems respond. 
what will we do? This is not only about a few elections. This is about a period in history. After the spawning of the last progressive era, we are now in what probably needs to be another progressive era. Yesterday, we talked about Facebook. Amazon today. The tax breaks that got them where they wanted to be. These companies not controlling the means of production, but the means of communication. What will this period of history yield? Nate has just begun some music. <laughs> One of the things that needs to go, though, is that we need to continue to build the Tom Hartman community. The community of people who is thinking not only about a particular election or a particular pop culture story, but what is happening in history. What are we being called to do in this era? When cities as wealthy as Washington, D.C. and New York City think they need to pay the biggest companies in the world and pay the richest man in the world $1.5 billion in tax breaks to locate in the place where he probably wanted to locate anyway. When New York City and Washington, D.C. wanted so badly to have HQ2 wanted Jeff Bezos to grace their cities with his presence. Without figuring out the financial plan to pay for the housing price increases or the transportation needs, the traffic increases by adding 50,000 jobs, which will certainly be a boon to those 50,000 people and will have economic ripple effects, but treating that not as something that also had negative externalities, but only positive externalities so it should be paid for to the tune of $1.5 billion. Like Andrew Carnegie playing Cleveland off of New York City, off of other cities and saying, ah, but if you go with me, I'll give you some libraries. But he didn't have to offer the libraries. They were gathering and garnering tax breaks. Will Mueller or Mueller, you pick your own pronunciation, survive the Thanksgiving weekend? They've asked for a 10-day extension for the status report on Paul Manafort's cooperation. There is speculation that there is another shoe soon to drop. Will that be the indicting of Donald Trump Jr.? Will that be increasing calls for an attorney general who does not seem so obviously a toady of the president who is being investigated and for his confederates? And as we learn the lessons of Nixon, as we think that the movement that has been built, that currently controls the government, has learned the lessons of Nixon, as they have built the Red Wall, are the coming weeks the reason the Red Wall was built? We think there probably is some stuff going down. The challenge of the Nixon analogy is that the world has changed and the power apparatus has changed. And that is one of the things that we'll talk about. Also, we also want to talk about the reports on 1,176 lies from Donald Trump. 
there's a reason that I didn't open with those lies. A journalist has been going around to every Trump speech and tracking his mistruths. You can call them lies. And there's a reason we didn't open up with that story and that he ramped up the lying in advance. And George Lakoff came out with his interview saying, ah, the reason for all those lies is not only because he's untethered to the truth, but because it makes journalists respond. He has found a glitch that if he says something absurd, he gets to control the story in an odd way because people have to set the record straight and make it clear that he's lied. And we're going to talk about that today. And one of the questions I'm going to have for you is, what are the lies that Donald Trump has said that you think are the big lies? If you want to offer some of the little ones, the very first time I was given the opportunity to sit in this chair, the topic we discussed was the big lie. And as George Lakoff has reminded, as the stories yesterday have reminded us of the cascade of lies, we'll talk about some of those, but also what are the big ones? If the purpose of little lie, if Lakoff is right, if the purpose of little lie is to distract from the big lie, what is that big lie? We'll continue to talk about the state of democracy. And let me give a little background about why we so want to focus on voting systems and why with all the stuff going on, with the change in power in the U.S. House, with maybe coming to a head, one of the most important presidential investigations in American history, why we'll continue to spend some focus on voting systems. And it is that I think that part of the challenge, if you look at the glitch, if you look at the glitch that the president has been able to exploit, that he's realized that all he needs to do is maintain 37% popularity, and his popularity has hovered between about 36 and 45% for the entirety. He's never really ticked above 50, never really ticked above 48. But that as long as he holds in his clutches a supermajority of Republicans, it means he bears no risk among Republican elected officials who would hold him accountable. It's the building of that red wall that is protecting him. And as we think about the big sword, as we think about the challenge of getting something done, as we think about the challenge of if there is a new president and Ruth Bader Ginsburg retires with that new president being president, how will that person even get confirmed? We want to be looking at voting systems. I want to bring on Carol from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Carol, can you hear me? Speak your piece. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jeff. You opened the show about industrialists, and you mentioned Carnegie. Now, being from Pittsburgh and actually from Homestead, where the steel mills were, they gave us libraries. They gave us a music hall, which thankfully is still in operation. But they also killed a lot of steel workers when they called the Pinkertons in on the steel strike. So a lot of blood was shed back then. There was a price to pay with these industrialists. These days, we've got Jeff Bezos, the information era. I am so glad Bernie Sanders is taking on Jeff Bezos. He got that $15 wage approved for Amazon workers. Now he's going after Walmart. So I wanted to hear what you think about Bernie's efforts to call these new era industrialists, information era industrialists to task. Thank you. And by the way, I think it's, in some respects, it's still an underappreciated story. And thank you, Carol, so much for calling. So Andrew Carnegie gave away 90%, sort of like a Bill Gates, gave 90% of his wealth to charity. But in 1901, he sold Carnegie Steel to J.P. Morgan 
to make U.S. steel, and that was a less philanthropic operation. And right now, controlling the means of communication, it means you don't have to just go lobby the American people. You can lobby the American people directly because you are influencing the means of communication. Applaud Bernie, of course, and any politician takes that on. I'll pick up a little more on specifics after this. This is The Tom Show. Welcome to the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Shout out again to Carol, who asked about Bernie's efforts to rein in uh, what she called the industrialists of today. And to me, the people who are controlling the means of communication are more powerful because they have a more direct impact not only on the economy, but also on democracy. As we saw in the last election, Facebook has influence with voters. And not only because people might want a job, not only because people hope that something will trickle down, but because they can go directly and communicate to those voters. So I think it's maybe a bigger deal. I think one of the important things to keep in mind for anybody running for president in the coming primary is who is willing to take on vast concentration of capital, vast concentration of wealth. Competition, good. Vast concentration of capital, dangerous. And who's willing also to make sure that The exit strategy for every startup tech company isn't just to be bought out by Amazon. And by the way, that's the exit strategy. Friend of mine who also recently tragically passed, guy named Sam Blackman, built a business, one of Portland's more successful upstart tech companies recently. And the exit strategy was to sell to Amazon. And this, by the way, this guy was a die in the old environmentalist liberal. But really, that's the win. And when you have your shareholders, ultimately, the win is not to be Amazon. It's to sell to them the same way that folks were selling to Microsoft, the same way that folks are selling to Google to a small handful of companies, essentially the Fangs plus Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, Google. Some would add Netflix. Now I put it in a little different category. Small handful of companies that are really controlling this economic era. And I think it ought to be, whether it's Bernie or other candidates who aren't yet as famous, and there's a good argument for us having a candidate, maybe even a boring candidate in 2020, but demonstrating a willingness to go after them because it's dangerous. It's hard to go after him. That will demonstrate courage. But thank you. Let's go to Lisa from Free Speech TV. Lisa, thanks for calling. Oh, hi, Jefferson. I partake in both Facebook and Amazon, unfortunately. And Likewise. I ask, my, <laughs> I ask myself a lot, why can't I put this aside? I recognize they both hold so many things that I'm against, or should I say against, I don't feel like I want to support. But what is it that I can't let go of? And that song from Blues Travelers comes into my mind, The Hook. The Hook always brings you back. And I think it's that we live in a time where they figured out how just to give just enough to keep you hooked. You know, the convenience, the ease, the, you know, occasional reward and price reduction. And I don't know, I think as a human species, we need to really examine ourselves and I don't know. There's a, I think there's a, a challenge to it because there's a hook to both these companies and, and Google and the others that you talk about. And it's always about ease and, and comfort that we seem to f- default to versus our morals and our integrity, right? Absolutely right. And by the way, when they've analyzed this stuff, they've recognized that in the same way that what was the, was it Barnum from Barnum and Bailey said nobody ever went broke underestimating the intelligence of the you know, American citizen. I don't think it's about intelligence. I do think it's about what you said is that we'll do so much to avoid hassle. 
will put up with so much. And I'm one of the worst offenders, absolutely. And I got a note from a loyal listener, and somebody's not only a loyal listener to Tom's show, but also to us at X-Ray in Portland. And she said, I think that Facebook is really important for activism. I think it's really important to be able to organize groups, be able to communicate with right. people, and not have to go through a radio for which, you know, Tom's show is the only progressive top 15 broadcast radio show in the country. And she makes a really good point. But the lesson of the breaking up of Ma Bell was not that there were no more telephone companies or not even that those telephone companies didn't exist. Just to check a little bit their monopolistic growth. Having steel and railroads was really useful for a lot of things. Yes, caused some harm, but really useful for a lot of things. It wasn't like, let's ban steel, but it is let's make sure they're not using that monopolist power to keep out others, to keep people from earning a living wage. And that stuff, it's sort it's hard stuff, but it's somewhat modest. So that'd be my response. I don't think you need right. to feel guilty for wanting to be able to share your wedding bar mitzvah for a personal life on a place that's you know handy to do that, but that also doesn't negate the need for some regulation. Yeah, exactly. But I do think as individuals, because I think healing happens on the cellular level, and all these great changes we've ever made in history have been because the collective has finally said, I don't care that I might have to sacrifice at this point. This is no longer acceptable. And that's my only point is that we really need to start challenging this comfort that we keep getting into, because I think over comfort is killing us. Well said. Thanks for calling. Mm-hmm. We got just about a minute. Doug, you've got your version of the big lie. Go ahead. I don't mean you're about to tell a big lie, but go ahead. There's two. There's Trump's big lie, and then there's the right wing's big lie. I think Trump's is that he committed treason, and that's what he fights for most. What do you think? Yeah, it is, depending on the definition of treason, which is sometimes defined as something that happens in wartime, speaking personally, my critique of the American political system tends to be a public interest critique, tends to be one of how can we be stronger together than we are apart? How can we recognize that some things aren't going to be accomplished just by way of selfishness? And I do think that the fundamental critique of Donald Trump shouldn't be one about merely personality, but it should be about an approach to the world that is sending the signal that selfishness, that focus on one's own benefit, willingness to corrupt the democratic system, the economic system for one's own power and wealth. That's the thing that, that all of us can have instincts to do that. And we shouldn't pretend that, that 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 is the only darkness in the world or that we don't have any in ourselves. I certainly do but that we work together, we come together in community, communities like this one, to try to be a little bit better rather than a lot worse. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where my data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing your email could put your private information at risk. You are being tracked online by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile and internet provider now that the Republicans have destroyed net neutrality. That's why I decided to take back my privacy by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of my computer, phone, and tablet. Turning on ExpressVPN protection only takes one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash Tom. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash T-H-O-M for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Tom to learn more. The Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. 
There have been a series of stories. Series might understate the case about the degree to which the current president of the United States prevaricates, the degree to which he obfuscates, the degree to which he says things which are contrary or almost entirely unrelated to fact. There has been one person who has been touring his speeches, who has been watching him word by word, line by line, utterance by utterance, assertion by assertion, and tracking those. Story just came out. It's Daniel Dale from the Toronto Star. I will let him give his own headline to proclaim his own thunder and emit his own barbaric yawp. Daniel Dale, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. All right. So you found at least two or three times when the current president of the United States lied. <laughs> I'm at uh, 3,749 oh, false claims since his inauguration. So, so a couple of times, yes. Okay, so two or, two or three or 3,400. And you found something else that he's had at least two or three just in the month or two leading up to the election. Yeah, it's, it's gotten worse. So I, I think it's fair to say that President Trump has been a serial liar since he took office. Um, but it's it's worsened since mid-2017, and then it's worsened significantly even beyond that in the two months prior to the midterms. So in the two months leading up to the midterms, um, he made more false claims than he made in all of 2017, so two months versus uh, basically uh, 11 and a half. Uh, in the one month leading up to the midterms, he made 815 false claims. It took him 286 days to make the first 815 false claims of his presidency. So, in, in so other give, words, those, give, give those numbers again. So we did 815. For some reason, I thought it was 816 or 817, but 815 in the month right before the midterm election. So essentially October and a little bit, you know, October yeah, in the first few days October of November. October 5th to, to November 5th. Yep. And then, and, and that was about the same as he had done in how many days prior, how many months prior? It, it, that's the same as he did in the first 286 days of his presidency. So he matched... His his uh, the, the number of false claims it took him 286 days to make as president. He matched that number in 31 days prior to the midterms. So let's start with methodology. How uh, I, I presumably uh, Conway would say, uh, well, no, it's not lies. It's alternative facts. But uh, what's your methodology for determining what a lie is? Well, I think I'm just doing basic journalism. So, you know, if he if he says something, you know, I'll I'll look it up. Um, is is that number correct? Uh, is there a basis for that story? Um, you know, what what does the data actually say? And so, I don't call all of them lies. Mm-hmm. I, I call it a list of false claims. I know this is a very political sure. uh, vocabulary debate. I think some are clearly lies, and I use that word frequently. Others, he may just be confused. He may be ignorant. You know, we know that he is both both of those things also. Mm-hmm. But I, I use lie when it's clear to me um, that he simply fabricated something. So when he tells the Wall Street Journal, as he did recently, uh, I don't have any tariffs. Wh- what tariffs? Where are the tariffs? Um, he knows he has tariffs. And so when he says he doesn't, that, that's a lie. And how come more you think? Is it just because, oh, well, it's campaign time and therefore he's making more speeches, he's doing more rallies? Or is it more sort of the George Lakoff hypothesis of this is a this is maybe an instinctive strategy, uh, maybe not, you know, three dimensional chess, but an instinctive strategy to uh, because that when it when it happens, not only do you say, oh, it's a lie, somebody else has got to correct the lie. And all of a sudden he's guided the conversation and he gets to pick the topic. He gets to pick the fight. What do you chalk up the increase to? 
I think this was deliberate, um, and I'm confident in saying that because having watched uh, basically all of his speeches and, and having read every transcript, most of his lying in the past has been when he has deviated from his prepared text. So not not to defend you know Trump's staffers, but they're not for the most part writing these lies into his speeches. This is him being Trump going off script. In in the lead up to the midterms, though, the lies were often in the script. They were in the text. Um, so they were putting things in the speeches like, you know, Democrats want to abolish the borders. Um, Democrats have no plan to protect people with pre-existing conditions. And so these were big, obvious lies that, that he was reading from a teleprompter. So I think this, this was uh, an orchestrated attempt to, to both change the subject and to convince people that, that untrue things were true on, on important midterm issues. Any of the lies that you tra- – so you, you've been going around what- – how do you make sure you watch every speech? This has got to be a. You, you, how do you have time to talk to us right now? This seems like a busy enterprise. <laughs> well, well he's, he's calmed down this week, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> during during the lead up to the midterms, I did not watch every one, but I read every transcript. Yeah. So I, I can tell you without complaining about it, the um, the four or five days where I just caught up and all this fact tracking, I started, it was like Thursday through Tuesday, basically. Um, were, were among the worst days of my professional life, just because there's there were so many. So it was, it was very unpleasant. How? What is this doing to you intellectually? What is this doing to how your synapses fire to read his particular kind of stream of consciousness uh, mistruth statements? I, I, don't, I don't exactly know. Maybe ask me in a year. I I, I feel the same as I did. Um, I don't think it is changed me in some fundamental way. But you know, I'm I'm just sadly familiar with with these patterns. So, you know, I know, I know when lies are coming, I know when he's winding up to them. Uh, and I know, you know, a lot of very uh, obscure pieces of information because I've been forced to fact check his, his, his very trivial, obscure lies. So it is 815 myths, myths, truths, you said, misstatements. What, what, what's the word that categorizes all of them? I, Some I, are lies. I, I, say, I say false claims. False claims. Thanks. Okay. Word. Yeah. So the 815 false claims in a month. Uh, that's it. That, t- that takes some doing. Okay, that takes some doing. We don't know. You, you haven't done this with a previous president, right? I, I, uh, no, I, I, I didn't. And I, I wish I had. Um, you know, I, I started covering Washington in 2015, so I wouldn't have been able to do it for the beginning of Obama. And yeah. frankly, no one, no one thought of this with previous presidents, because even though all of them were, you know, untruthful at one time or another, they, we didn't see this avalanche from them that we're seeing from Trump. Uh, what is your... Uh, it seems that the media is flummoxed about how to deal with this. And, and I, and I don't, uh, and I have some empathy about that. I think all, I'm among those who is flummoxed by what to do about it, because typically if, and this goes also to not only the false claims he has made or the lies he has stated, but also to the nasty things he has said, where it used to be such a thing like that. I mean, if you're, if you're Joe Biden and you, uh, and, and you get caught having plagiarized, you don't get to run for president anymore. Right. right. Like, like decades later, you get to be somebody's vice president, right. After you've, after you've gotten past that to some degree, but like one of those things is enough. I guess Trump has learned that as long as he says that the media is the enemy of the people. And as long as he has his own state run media, as long as he has Fox news behind and you know, the legions of AM radio behind him, he doesn't have that risk and he can offer a new one. It just distracts from the last one. Like part of the challenge is the media goes out, repeats the lie and then tries to correct the lie. That does two things. One, the lie makes it around the world further. And two, it picks the topic. What do you think we should be doing about it? 
I, I think we still have to challenge all of them whenever we can, even though I, I think that's a fair point about him picking the topic. Because I, I just think, you know, there is this conservative media ecosystem um, that will promote this stuff to, to tens of millions of people, regardless of what the rest of us do about it. You know, he does have his Twitter account with however many followers he has now. So this, this stuff is, is getting to people. Um, and so I think it, it is our job to, to challenge it every time. And I, I, I tried to make this point today in a piece in the Washington Post where I argued, you know, it, it can make it seem pedantic or obsessive or trivial when, when we are repeatedly pointing out that the same thing is wrong. But I think if he's going to keep saying that untrue thing, we have to challenge it. We have to be as inexhaustible uh, at, at challenging him as he is in, in telling them, because he's saying some of these things literally dozens of times. Like wh- one of them is mo- more than 90 times he said as president. And so if we give up on like the fifth time and he says it 85 more, then I, I think he wins there. I've heard of at least three strategies. One, uh, one is the ignore. You just mm-hmm. argued against the ignore. The second is the truth sandwich. Don't lead with the false statement. Lead with a true fact. And then give Trump lied, call it a lie or call it a false claim or accurately describe what it was relative to the truth and then finish again with the truth. And and then the other is sort of mine, which is every time I hear him do something crazy, what I try to do is discipline myself to take a breath, scan the room and see what else is going on and make sure I also am addressing not just his little lie, but addressing the big truth that needs to be covered. Uh, any other any other advice you have or what's one lie that was was surprised you most that he kept saying? That's that's a challenge. Um, well, let's see. Um, well, the, the one that he keeps repeating, I don't know if it surprises me, but you know, he keeps saying that, saying that U.S. Steel is building, uh, he started with six new plants and he made it seven new plants. Yeah, that's a weird plants. one. Yeah, I, I just advise uh, people, especially Trump opponents, um, not to despair that this is a, a post-truth era where facts don't matter at all. I think people see his shamelessness and his unwillingness to concede and to change in any way in response to people like me and say, well, this is, this is hopeless. But the goal isn't to change him, and it's not even to change his most fervent supporters. Um, I think we, we saw in the midterms, you know, there, there's another, there, there are other constituencies also. So I think, you know, if you can get facts to other people, you don't have to convince, you know, that hardcore 20% or 25% or whatever it was. You know, I think, I think there's lots of evidence that facts don't matter to a lot of people in America. Daniel Dale, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for what you're doing. My uh, you. uh, Following your work, I will say one other response. One other response, I think, is precisely what you're doing is to make the news story not the false statement, but the fact that he made a false statement. Right. And, the, and, and that's what you, I mean, you know, I'm telling you what you already know and why you're doing it, presumably. But I really appreciate your work. Where can people find out more? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at ddale and the number 8, ddale8, and they can look me up on the Toronto Star website, which is just thestar.com. Daniel Dale, thanks for being with us. All right, thank you. 
I've never endorsed a weight loss product, but that was before my brilliant wife, Louise, had such a great experience with Ridgizone. So good that she shared it with my producer, Sean. Sean, in your own words, talk about what you love most about Ridgizone. I've been frustrated for years, struggling with yo-yo dieting. I was really excited when I saw the results Louise had with Ridgizone. She looks amazing. I also like the fact that Ridgizone is based on university research that found a molecule that eases appetite and cravings so you eat less. Plus, Ridgizone is an FDA-accepted product designed to boost levels of that molecule along with your metabolism so you stop craving the wrong foods and burn calories faster. I'm excited to get my appetite and cravings under control so I can lose weight before the holidays. Stay tuned. Amen. Thanks, Sean. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription Ridgizone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off plus free shipping. Go to tryridyuzone.com. That's try R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Tryridyuzone.com. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith sitting in. Tom will be back. But while the cat is away, the mice will play. Yesterday we talked about small donations. We talked to the executive director of Act Blue. They processed $1.6 billion in small donations, averaging about $40 a piece. That included, you know, four figures, maybe even some five-figure donations. Today, we're talking about the biggest givers, the biggest contributors. And joining us from The Guardian, Natalie Jones, who did a story on the 20 biggest political donors this election. I want to talk to her about what we might learn from that. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. What Thanks for did, having me. Yeah, no, welcome. What most surprised you when you were doing this reporting? I think the most surprising thing is how many of these names I hadn't heard of before. And many of them I had heard of before, and you've probably heard of before. Some of these billionaires and millionaires are able to fly under the radar much more than I would have expected, um, and especially for people who have such big influence. So, yeah, that was very surprising. So Sheldon Adelson, Sheldon Miriam Adelson, in the story, uh, was number one, $113 million, uh, more than double that uh, number two. And... Uh, and if you add, I think, everybody below the, like the top seven up, they might match what the Adelsons did. There's been some coverage of that. Number two, Tom Steyer and Catherine Taylor. He's the guy who's been doing the impeach Trump ads. Some have thought he might run for president. Uh, but third on your list, Richard and Elizabeth Uline, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I hadn't heard of them. What do we know about Richard and Elizabeth Uline, who donated $39 million? Yeah, so they were covered. Uh, the New York Times had a story about them recently and called them the most powerful conservative couple you've never heard of. And they have been very active in their home state of Wisconsin for a long time, but a little more low profile nationally. But they are very active locally and, and starting to extend that reach and giving to very conservative PACs and candidates. And they gave $6.7 million for the Club for Growth action. Remind people the Club for Growth. Club for Growth Action is a super PAC that's dedicated to supporting anti-big government and pro-growth candidates. Um, so that's that's pretty general. There may be some conservative candidates that don't fit into that category, but they're specifically looking for those people that are supporting business and are anti-big government. Um, and I should also mention that some of these numbers, these numbers are probably at least because of the way that political giving is in this country right now, all of these people have most likely given to other organizations and political action committees that aren't recorded and that we don't know about. So keep that in mind. 
and I want to get to that and talk about it. I want to talk a little about the names, but uh, please don't hang up on us before we talk about that. Fourth on your list, Michael Bloomberg. People know that he's been working a lot, fighting gun violence. Donald Sussman at $22.8 million comes in at number five. He's a hedge fund guy. James Simon. What do we know about, uh, and that James Simon at number six, George Soros at number seven. George Soros might be you know, the, the number one target of anti-Semitic critiques when it comes to this donor list, but comes in at number seven. What do we know about number eight, Stephen and Christine Schwartzman? So Blackstone. Schwartzman, yeah, is a, is a hedge fund guy and has been around a long time and supporting conservative causes for a long time. I mean, he is closely connected to the Trump administration. The biggest thing that's not on this, I'll say some of the other names, Fred Eichner, never heard of Fred Eichner. The Kenneth Griffin gave $11 million. The CEO of Citadel, another hedge fund in Chicago. Bezos comes in at number 11 with $10.1 million. One of the Mellons, Timothy Mellon, a conservative who gave $10 million worth about a billion dollars, gave mostly to the conservative congressional leadership pack, but gave a $2,700 donation to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Tez, that puzzled yeah. you. Any, any speculation as to why? No, we looked into that and we couldn't find anything. We couldn't find any other reporting that anyone had done about that. So I have no idea. I mean, it seems like it, it couldn't have been error, even though it's a small donation for him. Um, it must have been intentional. But no, we couldn't find anything about that. I, I did want to bring up Blackstone because as we've been dealing with housing crises in so many American cities, uh, Blackstone as a hedge fund has been driving up housing prices in part because of pouring so much investment money into real estate. And Blackstone, one of the one of the biggest players in homeownership in all of the country. Uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of names that aren't on this list and get to the point that you raised, which is that this is at least how did you go about finding this? Presumably just looking at federal contribution filings. Was there any other information you tried to access to get to these to get to these figures? Because in the era of Citizens United, there's a lot you can't know about. Right. Right. So these numbers are from the Center for Responsive Politics, and they have a great website called opensecrets.org that collects these numbers and, and analyzes them. For this piece, we used those numbers, and we didn't get into trying to figure out what might be missing here. That is a huge undertaking that we just didn't have the resources for for this particular piece. But all of these are likely underestimates, and also these may have changed a little bit. This was published a couple days before the midterm, so they may have gone up a little bit in those last couple days. Koch brothers don't make the list. Is that because they ran out of money or because they no longer (laughs) care about changing the American political system? (laughs) They definitely didn't run out of money, and I, I think they definitely still care. I think they are likely not on this list because they're just not giving under their own name, and they are finding ways to kind of, um, lay low. They also are not enthusiastic about Trump. So while they are definitely still giving to conservative causes, they didn't give as much in the 2016 election as they planned on giving. They're not supporting Trump with um, as much publicity as they've supported other candidates in the past. 
Yeah, and one of the favorite books of a lot of listeners to this show is Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains. And her case is that their effort, and this is before the, written before Donald Trump, or research was done before Donald Trump, and before Brett Kavanaugh, before what happened with Merrick Garland, their effort has been the courts. They got the Supreme Court justice. They don't care as much about the House. And they've been building the apparatus outside the elected sphere. Natalie Jones, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. All right. And that's part of the point that I wanted to make, that I think it's useful to start learning some of these names uh, and start understanding kind of how the money is flowing. And there are and there are givers to Democratic candidates and Republican candidates on this list, to be sure. Uh, lots of both. The it doesn't talk about the one point five billion, six billion dollars through Act Blue, small donor contributions or directly to candidate, uh, directly to candidate websites. Usually that's on the Democratic side through Act Blue. But it also doesn't talk about all of the secret money or all of the non-political contribution. You know who else is not on this? Rupert Murdoch's not on this. But you know what he did? They impact the conversation hugely. We'll continue to track it and we'll continue to talk to you. Hugh, you win the prize for most patient. Thank you so much for being patient from Odessa, Texas. Speak your piece. No problem. I thank you for taking my call. I was wondering, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's help is a major thing. Yeah. If she keeps trying to hang on to 2024, but she's 85, if her health does not allow it, if she resigns in 2020, doesn't that go back to the Merrick Garland rule or Harry Reid rule or Mitch McConnell or whoever, that they have to wait until the election is over to appoint a Supreme Court justice, does that not give the Democratic base one heck of a reason to turn out? I mean, uh, some people say Trump wouldn't have been elected without Scalia dying. It's an enormously important point. I have too many responses. I'll try to limit my responses. And thank you, Hugh, for calling. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, first of all, live forever. You can have all of my ribs. You can have both of my kidneys. I, I think I speak for millions of Americans when I say that. Uh, there will be others, and, and I and I heard them then, who wanted her to retire when Barack Obama not only was president, but when there was a Democratic majority in the U.S. Senate. And I totally respect and honor her decision to serve in her role so ably for as long as she possibly could. And I hope that that is a lot longer. But you raise the big challenge that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about. When Republicans didn't freak out about their House loss, some could say, oh, yeah, because they want to sound like winners. When Donald Trump came out and said, well, yeah, we won when that was absurd, when it was a wave election and they lost 30 plus seats and lost by seven to nine points and got pasted. One could view that as, well, it's just them trumpeting victory to seem strong and pretend the color blue is the color red. But the other is that at some level, they're not as worried about the House because what they want was the Senate so they could hold on to the Supreme Court because the odds that she can stick through that they're betting that she might not be able to stick through not just another president, but you pointed it out. Even if Donald Trump is not able to win reelection, the ability for Democrats to take the Senate is challenging. Now, on election night, it looked like the Republicans were going to pick up a bunch of seats because all the votes hadn't yet been counted. Now there is a chance, a better chance for Democrats to pick up seats. It is one of the reasons why the Senate elections, if you live in Broward County, if you live in Palm Beach County, if you live in any county in the country, make sure, please, that your voting systems make sense and that your 
ballots are printed in a way that makes sense and that Pat Buchanan can't be confused for Al Gore and that the U.S. Senate race isn't below the instructions on the ballot sheet. That is something that human beings, that activists, the people that volunteer or work for elections offices can see to. It's why more and more progressives need to be motivated by the courts. That has been, I think you're absolutely right, Hugh, that that has been a motivating factor, maybe the number one motivating factor for conservative voters. Why Christian coalition members have stuck with Donald Trump, willing to pretend that he's a Christian because either because they don't care about that that much or because they're just fixated on the courts. And I think there is growing awareness. I think the Kavanaugh uh, hearings made there be growing awareness. I think that Citizens United made there be growing awareness of the critical function of the federal courts of Article three of the Constitution being a trump card over Article one and Article two. And the members of Article three getting longer terms than six year senators, four year presidents or two year members of the House. I'm going to step off my soapbox and take a call. But thank you so much, Hugh. You, what you said is terrifically important. We've got Kim in New York. Hello, Kim. Hello. I wanted to talk about the Amazon deal. Please. I live in New York. The last thing we need is a giant corporation who has more money than God to have a factory or whatever you want to call it in Queens. Um, with low-paying, low-wage, low non-union, and Bezos hates unions, uh, horrible working conditions for I don't know how many billions in credit the city is giving us when we need subways and housing. And it's a it's fair absurd. point, and thank you so much for your call, Kim, and thanks for being a Tom Hartman listener. My understanding of the HQs is that they will include a lot of high-paying jobs. Uh, you are right that they are running an apparatus that includes a lot of not paying jobs as well. And my, and you know, you know, New York, I lived there briefly, but you know it certainly better than I do. But you, you hit the challenge, right? It, to me, it's not like, should blank behavior be stopped? The question is, should it be subsidized? Or if it's going to be subsidized, to what end? What, which should be the thing receiving the subsidy? If New York City is going to be spending $1.5 billion in tax breaks, it seems like some portion of those $1.5 billion in taxes could be useful in building the very transportation infrastructure that could be useful to serve an operation like that. That there are positive, I, I use the term externality, it's a lame term, and I apologize for it, it ain't my fault. It's not, uh, it's sort of external costs, right? Economic term. It's familiar to a lot of you. If it's new to some of you, either I'm sorry or welcome. Uh, the it, it, mildly useful term, right? So it's like pollution, that's an externality. There are positive externalities to a new plant. There are positive externalities to a new headquarters. There are things that happen, there are benefits that don't just accrete to the consumer or to the producer or the employee or somebody that's in on that joke. There are people that also get to laugh at that joke. The challenge is there are also negative externalities. And if they're not pollution, they are things like, well, you need to pay for that somehow. And if they're high paying jobs, then that's going to jack up housing prices, as we've seen in Seattle. And then Seattle was like, oh, geez, we're going to have to do something like have a significant head tax, have a significant tax going to housing. And they had to reverse field because Amazon came in hard and said, we're going to leave entirely if you don't. By then they were addicted to it and they couldn't uh, easily gather the resource to address the housing shortage, the housing price increases that 
that a big organization like Amazon had contributed to. Contributed to, yes, because they're doing things that people want, and I totally get that. But we've also got to just be thinking about where the subsidy, which direction the subsidy should be going. But thank you for your call. We're going to go on Free Speech TV. Thanks for being with us to Johnny, the current holder of the Most Patient Listener Award. Go ahead, Johnny. I've been listening to these people for the past two days on Free Speech TV, on NPR, and other media, calling in their support for why Nancy Pelosi should be the uh, representative among the representatives in January. They're signing really weak reasons, saying that she knows where all the skeletons are buried. Well, she doesn't have to be in a position of, of a leadership to do that. She can be a regular senator and advise Maisie Hirono or but, Sheldon Whitehouse. Right, but the first that's the she's not skeletons a, she, she, are buried as if they can't figure it out on their own. She's not a senator. She's in the House. But setting that aside, the, the arguments I've heard that have been the most powerful are that usually the job is supposed to be uh, win seats for Democrats. I'm not saying that's the, the most important job of progressive movement. That's just what a Democratic leader is supposed to do. And the other job is to pass progressive legislation or at least big D Democratic priorities. And the argument I've heard that uh, w- might end up being the winning argument for her is that, well, they just picked up 36 seats so far and maybe counting. And she helped engineer the biggest piece of Democratic legislation in the the last quarter century. Talk about the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, which which my dad hates, and there's a. Can I get a word in here about that? Please. Okay, that doesn't wash with me for the simple reason that wrangling votes from Republicans to support a piece of legislation that was originated by Republicans, which mandates people purchase private retail for-profit insurance from bankers in New York. Yeah. That's not a winning argument for me. I'm sorry. She gets no credit for passing that for you. Absolutely none. Yeah. She's a nice lady, no, but she's been in, in, in that position too long. Let her just be a regular senator, or I mean a regular representative, sure. and let someone like Maisie Hirano or some other aggressive be in there who has the ability to be firm with Republicans, knows how to take no nonsense. And, you know, like I said, she's a nice lady, but she's gotten too sclerotic, and she's really good at raising money for establishment Democrats. I hear your case. Finally, when you hear NPR... And Fox and other mainstream media selling Nancy Pelosi so vigorously, you know it's time to look for somebody else. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it, John. Thank you. And thanks for listening. Cliff from Canyon Country, California, I think. Go ahead. Good morning, Jeff. Howdy. I really appreciate you, brother. I appreciate your intellect. I appreciate your perspective and your attitude. That's really kind. I appreciate you. The planet needs more people like you, straight up. Thanks, man. Hey, um, oil, fossil fuels, it's a finite resource, right? Yeah. I, I don't remember the last time I heard anybody talk about peak oil. But, yeah. listen, I'm in total agreement that we need to wean off fossil fuels. We need to utilize renewables to save our planet. My question is, how do we successfully transition to this future reality? Because as we speak, they're building thousands of miles of pipeline in addition to the existing thousands of miles of pipeline that are already in place. So it's going to take a huge transition to, to do this, to, to wean off of these. And another question is, like with airlines and, and passenger jets, is it reality that we're one day going to have a whole fleet of electric passenger jets? I mean, it'd be great if that could happen, but what's your thought on the reality of on fossil fuels, to yeah, renewables. All right, I'll, I'll offer a few. Thank you, Cliff. 
So there's a few, a few thoughts. One, uh, it, it does mean we need to move to renewables, but having that as our first priority, in my own judgment, is insufficient because of backfire effects. We learned about this with, uh, we saw this example with coal plants. When coal plants became more efficient, people used more coal. Uh, it was a little cheaper, it was a little cleaner, and all of a sudden it didn't end up having as big an effect as they had hoped it would have. So we have to be careful about backfire effects. I think the best thing, I think the boldest thing that we could do uh, from a policy perspective, I'm sort of, I was going to bury the lead. This is uh, one of the things about live radios. If you, uh, you get caught into saying something that might be a little bolder than otherwise you might. But I think ultimately we've got, it, it is about internalizing costs. It, the only way to get there will be to make sure that the activities that I do, that recognizing that when I drove here today, that I, you know, benefited the oil company and the whole supply chain that paid for that gas. I benefited the car company and the whole supply chain that built that car. Uh, I hopefully benefit the people that were on the other end of the trip. Uh, I benefited myself because I got to make that trip. But I also imposed costs on not just that little economic array, but everywhere else because I polluted a little bit. How do we make sure that I pay for that too? And so ultimately, I think if you if we did the if we did a carbon tax, and if we did that carbon tax not only to and not primarily to grow the apparatus of government, but to do what Alaska did and give everybody a little check to say, hey, listen, none of us grew the trees, none of us grew the dinosaurs or killed them or turned them into oil, none of us made the air. We share it together. It is our obligation to take care of it together. And if I'm going to steal some of it, if I'm going to misuse some of it, or if I'm just going to use it as a lot of people do, but damage it, I had to pay for that. If we had a carbon tax, and who should I pay? Should I pay some mammoth apparatus? Well, maybe. Or maybe I should pay everybody else who's sharing it with me. That, to me, that single thing would probably do more to deal with the climate crisis than anything else. I think personal conduct matters. I think around the edges matters. But ultimately, I think we're going to need states to lead on this until, finally, we're ready at a federal level. I'm worried, though. I'm worried we're running out of time. I'm so glad you bring it up. I don't talk about climate enough. I don't think any of us do. I've been using the Muse EEG neurofeedback headband. I'm not sure that's exactly what they call it, but the website is choosemuse.com. It's a little headband you put on, um, just sets over your ears, sort of like a pair of glasses, only it goes across the forehead, and it actually reads your brain waves, your EEG, and feeds it back to you through a free app on your, on your smartphone into your earphones, into your, into your ears, as the sounds of weather. And as your brain gets more agitated, the weather gets louder. And as your brain gets calmer and more peaceful and more meditative, the weather gets softer and the waves get softer. And you start hearing little birds when you're having really cool brainwave activity that's associated with the way that good meditators do it. It's a meditation instruction tool. And meditation is such an incredible thing. It, it you know helps concentration, focus, lowers blood pressure. I've been using this for about four or five months now. And I have noticed in my daily writing, because I've, I've got a 10-book contract right now, and I'm writing so much every single day. I used, to, I used to sit down to write and say, okay, I'm going to write for an hour. And half of that hour was spent with distractions. I'd think of this and think of that. And, oh, I need to check my email. Oh, i got to do this. And, and I would constantly distract myself and then eventually come back to it. Since I've started using the Muse, now when these distractions pop up, just like they do in my meditation, I've learned how to, just like in my meditation, say, oh, that's a distraction. I'll let go of that. I'll come back to that later. I'm going to get back to writing. And now, 
instead of getting 30 minutes worth of work done in an hour of sitting and writing, I'm getting 50 or 60 minutes of work done in an hour of sitting and writing. It's really extraordinary. The, you can learn all about it at choosemuse, M-U-S-E, choosemuse.com. And if you order using the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get $30 off. So check it out. It's great. Choosemuse.com. You are listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I am Jefferson Smith sitting in. Right now it is time for Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com. Thank you so much for being with us. Luke Vargas, I see your picture now. You're very handsome. Go ahead. Okay, North Korea, right? Haven't heard a lot about North Korea recently. Here's two headlines from the past day that are really interesting. Yesterday evening, we get word from the South Korean media uh, reporting on some little uh, propaganda releases from the North, suggesting North Korea has tested, quote, a newly developed ultra-modern tactical weapon, end quote. Pretty saucy, right? This is not a nuke. It's not a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile. It is likely an advanced piece of artillery, which is... uh, Like a railgun? My guess is that North Korea thinks... Well, okay, we get our headline, and then I'll present what I think my thesis is. So then we hear several hours later this guy, Bruce Byron Lawrence, who is an American who had previously been detained in South Korea, wandering near the DMZ, and had been arrested and deported last year for being in a landmine zone without permission... Uh, has now been or is going to be deported from North Korea, where several months ago he crossed into that country via the Chinese border. This guy's like completely hungering for attention and wanted to sneak into North Korea. Well, he was caught about a month ago, and he's now going to be deported back to the United States. And North, this is pe- being noted by people who say this is sort of the exception to the hostage rule for North Korea. Usually they hold on to these guys for a long time. They publicly milk it for all it's worth. They ask Bill Clinton or Bill Richardson to come in on a plane and extract them. Not necessary here. They're just sending them back. So put these two headlines next to each other, sort of a saber rattling and then a gesture supposedly of gra- like you know uh, friendliness or something like that. To me, this is like the perfect Donald Trump choose your own adventure. Like which headline does Trump respond to? Does he say, look, this is unacceptable. You cannot fire a new piece of artillery that's clearly designed to make the South Koreans shake in their boots. Yeah. Um, you know, how dare you? And on the other hand, thank you so much. Like our great cooperation has led to this strong working relationship. And you're just like, it's terrific. They're bringing Americans home. Trump loves nothing more than having hostages come home. And so it's a fascinating gamble to me. And my guess is um, that they just see themselves as having the upper hand here, right? That if the U.S. complains about the this latest military test, the North Korea will shoot back, hey, you've not only asked us to stop ballistic missile testing, you've not only told us to stop the nuclear test, but now this, like this is a conventional part of our armaments. You need to give us more in return. And that takes us to the negotiations where uh, we've now learned the U.S. is not going to demand North Korea hand over a full accounting of all of their nuclear and ballistic missile uh, uh, possessions. So, I don't know, I think they've got the leverage here. Um, I think it also serves the, the missile test or this artillery test serves to kind of insult the South Koreans, too, right, who have really gone out on a limb to be accommodating. And I, I actually admire President Moon of South Korea quite a lot for truly believing that sort of that all of the above peace agenda is possible, right, that you just pursue goodwill in as many fronts as possible and that in and of itself lowers tensions and is a good thing even if it means you know you have to take a hit here or there uh, on a, on something that may have previously been of national interest but this to me is tough i mean it really shows that uh, this is a, a specific kind of military threat 
to South Korea at a time when South Korea is trying to do a lot. So let's see what the reaction is here. But it, it, to me, I'm very curious how President Trump will respond, because I think the, the North Koreans have given Trump a, a kind of diametrically opposed choices here about how to respond. And his answer will probably tell them a lot. Well, I have a couple of thoughts. One, I think about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Kennedy mm-hmm. administration uh, acting as if they had only received one of the two letters. Uh, the other thing that comes to mind, though, and wanted to ask you, uh, Luke Vargas, mm-hmm. Talk Media News, TalkMediaNews.com, if that is your real name, uh, what are the schools of thought? What are the schools of recommendation for the response? I mean, the challenge, of course, is that Kim Jong-un has learned that if he does something naughty or something cataclysmically dangerous. If he builds nukes, people come to the table to say, what do we have to do so you don't do that anymore? And do they only bring stick or do they also bring carrot? And now he says, okay, well, we're abiding by the letter. We're going to have a big rail gun or whatever the heck it is. That's not, that's not part of our agreement. And he does something naughty or cataclysmically dangerous again, and then gets maybe stick or maybe carrot. What are the schools of thought around the various carrots or sticks? Well, I, I, I'm hesitant to, to provide a sort of a recommendation because I have solved the problem, please, for us, Luke. Please. Well, I, I almost want to sort of say what I think is easier to predict, which is sort of how North Korea is going to try and play this, uh, which is to say that I would imagine that with uh, the U.S. now making it pretty clear that we want to continue the diplomacy more than they do, i.e. we're giving we're dropping this demand that they turn over an accounting of what they hold that if I were North Korea, I would actually continue down this militaristic route a little bit, which is to say, if you're not going to get condemned by Trump for these tests and this increased belligerence, I would do more because this is a government in North Korea that really feeds off of that militaristic culture. And I know they've tried to do a pivot towards sort of becoming the friend of the world. But frankly, the propaganda in that country lives off of the militarism. And, And if Trump doesn't condemn them for this, I think they'll go further in that direction. Luke Vargas, Talk Media News. Thanks so much for being with us, man. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. I want to say thank you to everybody for calling, everybody who participated in this show. As we listen to Beethoven's Ninth, it's a good song, man. It's a good song. What I want to focus on is gratitude. Not the thanksgiving of merely white genocide or of colonialism, but gratitude itself. For activism, for our privileges that we are granted, gratitude for those we love, gratitude to Sean, Shira, and Nate for running this show, gratitude to Tom for there being a show, to John, to Rita, to Lee, to Morris, to Jeff at X-Ray, not me, to Bill at Sirius. He's not at Sirius, but he's in Clifton, New Jersey. For Tina from Modesto and her nudge that the post office be more empowered in the digital age. To Jacob for reminding us that we have to communicate not only in facts, not only in policy, and not only for power, but in story. And thank you to all of you, the Coalition of Benevolent Irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. Climate change ain't going to fix itself. A new education system is not going to fix itself. Homelessness is not going to fix itself. It's going to happen because of you. The good people doing good things for no good reason, and you are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. Tom will be back. Thank you so much for being so nice to me. Love you. Take care. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 